And so here we are in Genesis 35. Um, this is the end of Jacob's life, as we said, and he is interacting with um, a very last problem he has to deal with. If you remember, the man he wrestled with said to him, You, I'm changing your name, Jacob, to Israel. And Israel means you've striven with God. And he says to Jacob, You have striven with God and you have striven with men. And you have prevailed. Therefore, your name now is Israel. And if you ever liked fairy tales, and we all love them, where it ends and it says, the happy ending. You remember how it goes. It lived happily ever after. That's not Jacob's life. You would think from what we had with him experiencing the presence of God as he did, beholding in some sense the silhouette of the face of God on the rising morning sun as he wrestled with that man, that's the climax of your life. You, we talk about a conversion experience. We talk about mountaintop experiences. We've all probably had those in some degree or another. If you know Jesus at all, you've experienced something of his power and grace on your life. But you know the very next day is the next day. It doesn't end like the three little pigs. They didn't live happily ever after. And so Jacob, after he's told he's striven with God and men and prevailed, he goes right back to striving with God and with men. What happens is, Immediately, I'll pick up reading here in Genesis 34, uh, verse 1. First few verses start off this way. Now it says, Dinah, uh, the daughter of Leah, whom she had bore uh, to Jacob, went out to, seek, uh, to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Immediately, his daughter is raped. This man, Shechem, is the prince of a city named Shechem. His father, the king of that city, is Hamor. They come to Jacob and propose a solution because whatever the story is, we're not told. She is partying or spending a lot of time with Random women she doesn't know of the land. Women who don't know the Lord or are not in that covenant. And whatever happens, happens. It's wrong. But in the ancient world, what's almost worse than this is this without protection. This without marriage. This without any prospect of future life. And he, we're told, Shechem actually loved her and wanted to marry her. And so they come to Jacob and they try to make a deal with him and say... Let us actually have an agreement, you and I, that we would intermarry and actually become one people. Now Jacob in the story, as it continues, is quiet because he understands that they have all the strength. As Jacob's first name really means heel, he always has the underhand in every story. He's always the heel of every interaction he's ever been in with his father, with his uh, brother, with Laban, and now here with this city of men who could always destroy him and his family. And so he doesn't say much. But Jacob's sons 
come in from the field and hear that their sister had been defiled. And they're indignant and they're furious. Now, the deal was tried to make in verse 9, we pick up and read, where Hamor and Shechem, his uh, son, they uh, say, make marriages with us in verse 9. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourself. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get prosperity in it. Verse 13, it says, The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to, you, uh, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are, that every male among you will be circumcised. And what's amazing about the story is Hamor and Shechem receive that information, go back to their city, present it at the city courtyard, and say, here's the deal. We can be one with these people. We can intermarry with them. We can trade livestock and property and wealth. The only condition is every man here has to be circumcised. And they all say, that sounds great. Let's do that. And they do. Now granted, the people who are running this city, just like most people who run things, try to sugarcoat the truth for their own advantage. There's never told anything about Shechem and his love for Dinah and his uh, treachery toward her. So either way, the people, not knowing any of this, enter into covenant with Israel. And we find out it was only done deceitfully. On the third day after that, as they were sore, as you would be sore from something like that, we're told that Simon and Levi, two of Jacob's sons who are direct brothers of Dinah, entered into the city, perhaps with some others, and killed all the males. Just slaughtered them all. And even killed Hamor and Shechem. They took Dinah out of the city, who was apparently captive in the city. And then they plundered the city and took all the wealth and the flocks, and even the women and the children. So what you have there is immediately Jacob entering back into hostility between men. He goes from this mountaintop experience with God and then immediately someone sins against him greatly and his sons respond over the top to make it even worse. And here we actually pick up reading in 34, verse 30. Then Jacob said uh, to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me, making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Prezites. Parasites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And God said, and here's the transition of it all God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there. To the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. You know, the first time you were trying not to be killed. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away 
the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourself, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were on their ears. Jacob hid them under a terebinth tree there that was in Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, which means Bethel is the house of God. Because there God revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under the oak below Bethel. So he called the name of it Aloth Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again. Then he called, uh, uh, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Badan Aram and blessed him. So here's the second appearance now. God appeared to him there, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob, no longer. No longer shall your name be called Jacob. But Israel, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken to him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of that place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. And that is the point, the best point where we will find anywhere in Jacob's life where we can say, and he lived happily ever after. But of course, if we kept reading, we find out his wife dies, and then another thing happens, and so forth. But that is the bookends. This is the close of his life. He has come to Bethel. And as best as you can do in Scripture, for it is not fairy tale, it is the true story of salvation that everybody in Scripture knows they still have to pass through death, even though they might be saved. Jacob is saved. He began following God in Bethel. And he ends the real narrative, the real gist of his life, the story, the power of his life ends here at Bethel, the house of God. It was first at Bethel where God blessed him. And then he received that when he wrestled with that man who actually really blessed him. The blessing was always given by the laying on of a hand. And that man that he wrestled touched his hip and threw it out of socket. Was the small price to pay for him to receive a real blessing directly from God. And with that blessing came a transformation. That is a name change. That man he wrestled with changed his name from Jacob to Israel. God 
affirmed all the promises that he made there. And he says, you are Israel. And here now, he meets God again at Bethel. And he reaffirms it once more. To say the same thing, notice, that the mysterious man said to him. That mysterious man said, you are Israel. And now the God he knows from his youth, the God he met at Bethel, comes to him and says, I know that your name is Israel. Now you need to know that your name is Israel. Isn't that interesting? They almost seem to be the same God. He returns to Bethel because at the beginning when he was there, he vowed, Lord, if you will preserve my life, if you will give me clothes to wear and food to eat, that I can return back to my father's land, to this place, Bethel, the place where he first put up that stone, then you will be my God. The Lord will be my God, it says. Yahweh will be my God. And I will give one-tenth of everything I have to you. I will serve you. I will submit to you. I will pay my taxes to you. You will really be my God, my Lord, my master, my king. That's the biblical definition of Jesus' lordship. That you pay taxes to him. That you submit everything to him. That he gets a whole day to himself called the Lord's Day. In which he is worshipped to commemorate his coronation. And his awesomeness across all creation. That's real worship as far as scripture is concerned. And Jacob understands that and says, No jokes, no games. If you preserve me. If you bring me back to this stone at Bethel. I'll make A house for you. I will worship you. You will be my God. If, if you will save me. If you will save me. Preserve my life. Down to the practicalities of giving me bread and clothes. Not just this idea of what we say salvation might be. That you go to be in heaven someday when you die. You might notice that's not in here at all. God is working salvation in his life. He is working salvation in his life. He's told that he is striven with God and men and prevailed. And right after he's told that he is striven with God and men and prevailed, he continues to strive with God and with men that he might prevail. You were saved. Today, even now under the preaching of God's word, you are in the process of being saved. And tomorrow, when something happens to you, you will continue to be being saved. This is the story of how God has always been saving his people through life. The process of salvation. Salvation is a process of blessing. Perhaps you have noticed that when we look, as we've been preaching through the book of Genesis, from Abraham's life to Isaac's life, To Jacob's life, there is no promise. God does not show up on the scene and say, Believe in me, accept me into your little heart, give me a few little inches that I might just be on the footstool of your porch, and then when you die, you can go to heaven and float on a cloud and play a harp. That's that's like, there's nothing there about that. Isn't that odd? 
that that actually is how people think of salvation? When we go down to the seedbed of the promises of the whole gospel, it was never that way from the beginning. That whole conception. Abraham is promised that he would have a great name, to be a great nation, and that he would be a blessing to all the other nations, real nations with peoples and cultures and languages and clothes and food and houses and soil and gardens and farms and cows and goats. That's what it was about. Because God is actually interested in saving the world, not getting us out of the world. The beginning of all beginnings was God in a real garden with a real man walking in beautiful communion. And we not lessen that or deceive ourselves to think that that plan has ever changed from the beginning. That your salvation is you will be resurrected in a body and we will all be back here with a sinless state, worshiping the true Jesus Christ. When Jacob is done with his story, he lays his bones in the soil, and you and I will be with him in that day. That is salvation. A new creation. And nothing less. And God is working that for him. See, the problem with all of this is that the sign of what I just described as salvation was given to Abraham. And it's usually, for most people, a, just a really bizarre thing is all it is, is circumcision. Wow, okay, what is that? Weird, and it's too easy to make jokes. The sign that God will save the world is this. The sign of circumcision. We're told in Genesis 17, God came to Abraham and said, I will put my covenant, my promise in your flesh that all, every male of your household will be circumcised. Now the problem, this whole story here is that the sign that should bring the salvation of the world, the real world, was used as a subterfuge, deception, to slaughter a whole city. So the brothers come and say, well, we can't do this with you. Right? The whole story is God trying to save sinful men. So much so, it's like watching two antithetical things fight one another. That's why people like watching, for example, demolition derbies. You have a car here and a car here. And they're both trying to go this way as fast as they can. And everyone just has to watch. It's interesting. Or the whole point of football is you have one team and another team. And they're trying to, all they're doing is trying to go the other way. You have a holy God. Good and loving and merciful. And you have wretched, disgusting, selfish sinners. And the whole story of scripture is, who will get to the touchdown zone? Who will win? How could God use salvation? How could he bring salvation to these people when he's actually trying to be merciful and loving toward them and dwell in their midst? 
the sign of salvation coming. And here with all these sinners, could you actually ruin it? The gospel, the sign that God would save the world, you use it to slaughter a city. At any point, at any turn, through all these stories, you have to imagine God putting his hand up in the air and saying, I'm done. I'm done. I gave him a sign that was going to save the world. They used that sign to trick these people into slaughtering a whole city. I, I'm done. I can't do this. I, I, I'm not going to try to save him anymore. Do you see the story there? Do you see your sin? Do you see this is about you and me? Do you see the Romans 5.20 says, Wherever sin is, grace abounds all the more. Fortunately, we're never saved through religious things. The sign doesn't save at all. It points to a salvation. The reason the sign, the sign of salvation was circumcision is that it had to be a male and it had to be the sex organ. Because it was a sign pointing to the seed. And that seed is the savior of the world. The whole reason that God doesn't end the story here again. The whole reason that God continues to preserve Jacob here again. In the midst of all his pollution and corruption. Is because the salvation never rested in that sign. It was just a sign pointing to this one person who could actually fix the problem. The seed. It had to be a male. That it had to be patrimonial. That is, Israel was a patrimonial culture. That is, inheritance and property rights and redemption traveled through the patriarchy, the male heirs. It had to be patrimonial because Colossians says, we are told that he is the firstborn among all creation. He is the one who inherited it all. And then when he resurrects, he says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. I am the seed. I am the king. Kings were supposed to come from Abraham's loins. That one king was the Lord and he is the ruler of the world. It had to be a circumcised male because it's signed pointing to the inherited ancestral firstborn rights of the lordship of the king Jesus. That he will take the world and wrap it in his arms and say this is mine. And it will be the beginning process of his full salvation of this world. And it had to be the male sex organ for that reason. So that it would be a sign to say it is the seed. Not all the children that could ever come from Abraham. But all the children successively leading to this one child. This one seed that will save the world. Not taking us to go beyond clouds and float around. And maybe go to be with Jesus when we die. But... God coming into the world through the loins of a human so that he would save the real world in a real body. This is why our salvation. Do you, does this not change everything to see your salvation this way? That your whole life matters. Everything you do here is important because it's all about here. The new heavens and the new earth is the resurrected body of the new creation is here now. So therefore, Mondays matter. Sundays prepare you to continue the work of salvation into Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays. They're all vitally important to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so there we learn that even though the sign of salvation is used to bring about wickedness in sinful men, God uses it again. The sign was always a sign of humble reliance. The circumcision, for example, in Deuteronomy 30 is likened to this. 
The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, that you may live. It's a sign of humble obedience and reliance upon the seed that should come. Do you see now the gospel that you and I claim, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, is literally nothing different than this sign of circumcision. Trust in the seed and you will be saved. Humbly rely upon the one who is to come for your salvation and you will be saved. The eternal gospel that Revelation speaks about is truly that, the gospel that has never changed. It has been about Jesus from beginning to end. And we only can unravel some of that mystery as time progresses. So after rape, filthy thing, after murdering a whole city, not, not a good thing, an overreaction of course, Deuteronomy says that a rapist, Deuteronomy 22, 25, if a man rapes a woman, he could be drugged before the city gates and stoned to death. That doesn't mean to slaughter a whole city. Obviously, there's no justice in this. It's an overreaction. And so what happens is, as Jacob is striving against men, they wronged him, his sons wronged the other people, and the accumulation of sin is rising. It's obviously making things hostile. It's going to lead to a war. Now they've done it in such a way, in such an evil way, that not only striving against God, he has now yet again, right after receiving the blessing of being called Israel, the one who strives against God and prevails, he goes and strives against God again by slaughtering a whole city and bringing his whole family and his whole covenant community under tremendous guilt, tremendous guilt, that after God had let him go and only graced his hip so that he might limp away and not die. He goes and falls again under the condemnation of God. Do you see this cycle in your life? Do you sometimes feel close to him? And then sometimes feel so unworthy? Do you see that he is saving you? You're not saved. You're being saved. And do you see... This is it. You have to see the first verse of chapter 35. We cannot bypass this verse. Jesus Christ is the only reason this verse is before your eyes. If it were not for the seed, if it were not for the sign pointing to that seed, this verse should never be there. You and I should not be here. I should not have read Psalm 24 as we started. He says to him, immediately, just, just straight to the point, God comes to him and says, arise and go up. Go up to Bethel. The word is a leah, to go up, to ascend. Jewish people, even today, when they make pilgrimages, call it oleah. The ancient Jews called it Aleah. That is, they were going up to Jerusalem. The pilgrimage throughout the year of Aleah, going up. In the midst of all his corruption and filth and sin, God immediately just comes to him, doesn't talk about anything, doesn't even deal with any of it, and just says, come up, come up to me now. Do you understand what that means for you and me? Do you understand that in Christ, 
Immediately, we are invited to come up. We cannot overlook this invitation. It is not a small thing at all. It seems common. It seems trivial. It seems so silly to go and speak to someone and say, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you can be saved. And they say, no, I'm busy right now. Like, it is passed over. This verse could be read a thousand times and forgotten. But it is the most significant thing that God could ever have said to him at that time. Come up to me. In all of your sin, I just have been working with you your whole life. I just wrestled you all night. Come back up to me. Come back up to me. I won't turn you away. Come back now. Come to Bethel, the house of God. The Father beckoning. The... Where did Jesus get the parable of the Son? Where did, he, where did he find that at all, I wonder? This son that ran away and squandered all of his father's wealth and is eating with the pigs in Luke 15, and the father comes and says, come back to my house. Come back here. Aleah, come up to Bethel. That one I promised you beforehand that I would preserve your life the whole way through. I'd bring you back to this point. And I've preserved you the whole way through with your brother and with Laban and anyone else that has ever sought to harm you. And now you have a whole other surrounding cities that probably hate you and want to kill you. Come back. And God protects them and puts a fear in all the other cities that no one touches them again. He has escaped. He is preserved. He is saved. That's real salvation, you see. The, the, the concept of salvation, the concept of salvation is well-doing, being good. It's not just going to heaven when we die. It's actually the idea that you are really preserved. Your life is spared. God has called him up because of the mediator. There is a real mediation that happens. Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Not those who slaughter cities. Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Which is exactly what this story is all about. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He preserved Jacob's life again from being destroyed. Such is the generation of all those who seek him. And Psalm 24 ends, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. As Jacob was able to seek God's face in the midst of all of this, who else would be able to alaya, to ascend up? Nobody, nobody with an impure heart or dirty hands. And yet that is exactly who he is, and that is his exact invitation. This is only because he is being saved. God is saving him again and again, and all because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, as Jacob has learned to be a man of prayer, when you feel farthest from God, this is the time to come close to God. When you feel as though you're unworthy, that is exactly when you must go to him immediately. Because on your best day, you are only a millimeter more worthy than on your worst day. Because all of our righteousness is in Christ. Notice what he does. He has learned to pray. He goes to his family, his household, and says, Cleanse, 
Cleanse yourself of idols. Search inside your coat pockets. Find anything inside you that is loving things that are not God. Any of your desires and the beauty of your heart, the deceitfulness of riches, the love of money, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, all these things we all the time, every day, every moment, have to be skirting out of our pants and coat pockets and everything. They accumulate to us. They come to us. As we have mountaintop experience with the Lord, we come down immediately and find ourselves wrapped in a bunch of idols. And there is no way to approach God. So here is how he prays. He cleanses his whole household of idols. And in all of the symbolism, the picture, is that they cleanse themselves, shave themselves, put on new clothes, and they are clean and pure on the outside, demonstrating the preparation that goes in to truly approaching God by looking within to be cleansed. And then he builds an altar. Another image of prayer, not holding back. The animal, anything that is burnt up on that altar, represents the only appropriate way to pray to God, to approach God, as understanding that your life is nothing. That you are in that moment content with him taking your life at any time. If you ever struggle with anxiety and worry. If your regular daily prayer pattern is to consider yourself dead before the Lord in that prayer. And I mean in your mind approaching him in such a way that you would be at peace if he were to suck the breath from your lungs that moment and you were to die. That means... As far as what Jacob is concerned, you have laid yourself on the altar. You are dead. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will find it. That's the only way to come to God in prayer. It always starts with an altar. And that altar is always a symbol for death. And it's not about the death of the animal. It's about a death of the animal in your place because you should be dying. And so now for in Christ we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. But living sacrifices, every prayer... Do you notice the difference when you pray sometimes so routinely and so distantly and it doesn't seem transcendent. It doesn't seem as though you really have done what Psalm 24 is saying when you actually approach the hill of the Lord, that you've come close to the presence of God, that he's mediated some blessings to you or gracious sense of his love or, or, or goodness. Perhaps because you've never really entered into prayer, which is the first part of building an altar. Offering your life there now, promptly and sincerely before the Lord. And this is what he does. He comes to the Lord in prayer that way. And the result of real prayer, true prayer, through a real mediator, ends here for him with actual communion, which is what we will have shortly. But real communion with God. Real prayer encounters the living God. I cannot tell you what your name is. Do you realize? Nobody around you can tell you what your name is. Do you realize when you need to hear what's true? And you might have good godly people around you trying to give you truth from the word. And your heart is so broken or hard that it's like Teflon and it just can't pierce in. You can't accept these things. 
you're beside yourself with guilt or anxiety or sorrow. You just, it's not working. It's because no one can really tell you your name. If your name really is, as it's conceived in the Old Testament, as being an indication of your nature, who would ever be able to go there? But as a result of his prayer before the Lord, God appeared to Jacob again. It says in verse 9. And he says, by the way, do you remember this? No longer your name is Jacob. Israel shall be your name. And it says, and then it pauses and says, and he called him Israel. When God tells you that, you're free. When God tells you that you are His, no one else can do that for you. No one else can do that for you. No friend, no sermon, no counselor. Not even just reading the scriptures apart from the Holy Spirit. There's no way that that can get into your heart. It has to be through actually transcending and God coming down to speak that to you. And that only happens through communion and prayer. That's the only way he can give you a new name, which is the same as a new nature, which is the same as a new creation, which is the same as being re-identified, reconstituted, that you really are his child, that you really are loved, that you are in some way wrapped in his arms. You are held. You are secure. You feel that and his breath upon your neck knowing that your father has you in his house. That only happens through real communion. There is no other alternative. And so here is exactly what Jacob is given again. A reminder of who he is. That, and do you remember when he wrestled with that man? He said, now what is your name? That man that said, your name is no longer Jacob. It will be Israel. And then Jacob says, wonderful, now what is your name? Well, here the God he meets at Bethel says to him, your name is no longer Jacob, but Israel. I am God Almighty. He gave him his name. I am God Almighty. And you will be saved, you sinner. I will change you. You will not be Jacob anymore. These stories will end. There will be no more war. There will be no more Shechem. There will be no more slaughter. I will take every sword and make it a plowshare. I will end all war and violence on the earth. And I will save the real earth with real nations and real people. For I am God Almighty. Be saved. You will be saved. I will save you. I will not leave you. That's who he is. Yes, he can move your hip out of place with all his power. But the same almighty, powerful God just grazed his hip so that he would remember that he is a different person. He'll never forget the time he encountered the living God. For in all that power, he could have broke his hip and killed him a thousand times over. But his gospel to you, his gospel to me, is that he will save the world through that power, not condemn the world through that power, because his own son has swallowed up all the condemnation that the Almighty God could pour out. 
and it is gone. And everything that is left is a simple yes in Jesus' name. So, if you are saved, it is this. If you've committed your heart to Christ, then you are saved. If you entrust your life to his hands, then you are saved. Because you have rested yourself upon him who has clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 42, the Psalter, that sets the Psalms to poetry, says this. But the Lord will send salvation, and by day his love provide. He shall be my exaltation, and my song at eventide. On his praise ere in the night, I will ponder with delight, and in prayers transcending distance, seek the God of my existence. That is what he's doing with you. Dear Father, In prayers transcending distance, we now here, Lord, seek you, the God of our existence. For you have made our nature, and you can remake our nature. We have inherited various names from our first fathers who were born in sin. But you have given us a new name as we have been born from heaven, as we have been born again. So Father, let us be transformed before we leave here. And let what we do here before you cause us to remember your Son and his sacrifice for us. Amen. Would you please stand if you're able while we prepare for communion by singing, Created Me a Clean Heart. These lyrics come from Psalm 51.